Hello and welcome to the Brain Care Podcast, a practical and impactful series of snappy episodes on how to optimize your mental health and performance so you can reach your full potential. My name is Dan Murray-Serta, and I'm the co-founder at Heights. We make smart supplements and clever content with the world's leading experts to help you take care of your brain so it can take care of you. Today, we welcome back James Temperton, the digital editor of Wired, to discuss more insights and lessons from his new series of short guides by Wired. And our focus is on the future of medicine, as it was in the last episode, where we explored some amazing themes like aging and designer babies. This time, we're going to focus more on the potential medical innovations of all things brain. You'll be pleased to know because that's really why you're here. So James, welcome back. Good to be back. Now, in your brilliant chapter on the brain, you mentioned the disorders of the brain affect nearly one fifth of the world's population. And yet even after decades of research, there's been little to no progress actually made in understanding the molecular causes of psychiatric disorders. So why don't we start with why that is? Turns out the brain is is really complicated. So let's start with the image of a dead body, of that body lying on a slab in in a mortuary or in a research facility. So what happens to the body once you die is unpleasant, but doesn't do a lot to diminish our ability to study the body. But the brain is quite different. So as the blood drains away from your your brain, it, it changes color. It goes from being sort of a yellowish pink to a cold, murky grain effectively the brain starts to eat itself so it becomes acidic the cells collapse in a process called liquidification and after just a few minutes of being dead your brain is irreversibly gone so as a neuroscientist that is not very useful we're able to study non-brain tissue very very successfully after death but when it comes to seeing those neurons firing asking questions about how the brain has been communicating or miscommunicating in amongst all of its different departments, if you like, that's impossible. So even the most meticulously preserved brain tissue that's been frozen, cut into a tiny, very, very thin, translucent slice, less than a couple of millimeters thick, it's not useless, but it's almost useless. And when you think that there are 86 billion neurons and hundreds of trillions of synapses in the human brain, all of that's lost the second someone dies. So access to tissue that you can study is really, really hard in neuroscience. And it's it's not the case that we can take someone's brain out and study it. So this, this is the, the major, major blocker to neuroscientific research and access to living, firing tissue. You mention uh, in the book a quite remarkable development from neuroscientist Sergio Pasca, uh, which was inspired, I believe, by Shinya Yamanaka, who was a Japanese Nobel Prize winner in physiology. Tell us about that story and what it actually means for how we can uh, understand the brain in not just the future, but our immediate present, pretty much. Yeah, so what Pasca's um, been able to do building on the, the work of Yamanaka is come up with the potential for studying living brain tissue or brain-like tissue in 
a Petri dish. So what Yamanaka showed is it's possible to turn back time and flip a fully developed cell back into its egg-like state. So if you imagine any cell has the potential to become any cell once it's in that egg-like state. So that was very, very surprising because as you might imagine, we presume that development was a one-way street. But what Yamanaka found were the proteins that could turn a skin cell, for example, into a brain cell. And this process, to simplify it, works by exposing cells to a set of genes that are found in stem cells. And these are the, you know, the master cells that give rise to all other cells. And when this happens, remarkably, those cells also become master cells. And that means that you can turn them into pretty much anything you want to. It was a really, really massive breakthrough. This meant that Pascu could take skin cells from a patient with a psychiatric disorder and reprogram them into pluripotent stem cells and then guide those cells to become neurons or brain tissue that would allow him to study the cellular processes that were happening in that patient in a non-invasive way. And what's crucial here is they're able to take the skin cells from the specific patient with the specific condition that they wanted to study. It's very, very early stages, but it's opening up the possibility of doing what we're able to do with cancer, for example, in neuroscience. You know, you mentioned as well uh, some great insight in the book on how you actually think the medical research can help with the treatment of mental neurological diseases in our not-too-distant future. So share that, please. That's incredibly impactful. So what you're able to see once you've got living, firing tissue in front of you is the processes that might lead to certain conditions and disorders. Now, this is a very, very complicated area and it's very much in its infancy. So there's a couple of caveats that are really important to make here. Pasca goes to great lengths and great pains to point out that he's not growing mini brains. What he's growing are sort of almost blobs they resemble and share a lot of characteristics with brain tissue, but they are not miniature brains. But they allow him to see the processes that might drive certain conditions. So Pasca has conducted a study on people with Timothy syndrome, which is a rare and often fatal genetic condition that is caused by some of the same gene variants that are associated with schizophrenia and some forms of autism spectrum disorder and bipolar disorder. What's interesting about the research that Pasca has been able to do is he's been able to understand why people with Timothy syndrome get Timothy syndrome, or why it appears that they get Timothy syndrome, by looking at what happens in their brains by using this, this stem cell technique. And what's remarkable is early on in his research, there were questions about how successfully these blobs of cells would be able to survive in the lab. But over several iterations of the experiment, Pasca has been able to extend the lifespan of his experiments. And these things that he's growing in, in, in Petri dishes, that, you know, they're, they're not intelligent, they're not brains, they show the same processes and allow him to study them, is that they become more complex in a way, they start to knit together in ways that match fetal development. They're never going to turn into a fully fledged brain. That isn't what's going on here. But they allow him to see a very basic facsimile of the process that's happening inside these patients and to understand the biomarkers, if you like, the, you know, the cellular clues 
the processes that are going on within the brain that suggest why someone might be schizophrenic or why someone might have bipolar disorder. Once we find these areas that we could potentially target or explore in more detail, that opens up possibilities in neuroscience that have previously only been possible, say, in treating cancer or diabetes. What else was there that you unpacked during this chapter that you haven't yet had the opportunity to share that got you excited about the near possibilities of our brain care opportunities as, as a species? I'm sure a lot of your listeners will be familiar with the Human Genome Project, and they might even be familiar with the Human Cell Atlas, which is a similar project that's been ongoing for the last several years to create a vast atlas, as the name suggests, of every single cell in the human body. It's one of the largest collaborative works of science that's ever been undertaken. Now, it turns out there's a version of that for neuroscience called PsychEncode. It's been running since 2015. It's funded to the tune of $50 million by um, various institutes in the United States. And its aim is to create a absolutely vast publicly available database of the genetic and biological processes that are active throughout the human brain. It's a, it's a brain map. So unlike disorders that are caused by mutations in a single gene, cystic fibrosis, for example, most neurological disorders are, by their very nature, really, really complex and the result of hundreds of genetic variations and environmental factors, which makes it really, really hard to pinpoint which factors carry with them the highest risk of disease. What Psychin Code is aiming to do is give us an index, something that we can look to use as a reference to make sure that when we're looking at an individual patient, we're able to understand potentially what's going on inside their own brain mapped against what we know about, quote unquote, a healthy or sort of base model reference brain. And that will allow us to find those variations, to find those moments where something appears to be awry. And then potentially, once we've got a good enough knowledge of all of those different variations, we'll be able to develop treatments to target those areas, potentially. So this is the very, very beginning of neuroscience and psychiatry, being able to treat the brain in the same way as we treat the body. Again, it's really, really ethically complicated, and there's a lot of stuff still to be worked out. But what we're seeing in these pioneering bits of research is what might be possible. It's the first glimpse of a future where psychiatry and neuroscience have access to the same quality of information as the treatment of cancer, diabetes, and, and other genetic conditions. You mentioned, uh, you know, it's ethically complicated. Just at a high level, what are the ethical um, implications in, in this circumstance? So to take a condition like autism spectrum disorder, if you're able to find biomarkers to suggest why someone might be autistic, that is a, a very, very complicated area. Even with regards schizophrenia, these aren't conditions or disorders that we're used to treating the way that we might be able to treat them in the future. So, you know, someone who's um, who has autism spectrum disorder, what's to say that we should even treat them? What's to say that they should be prescribed a medicine or that some sort of medical intervention should be made? Because, you know, the, 
there might not be anything quote unquote wrong with them. All the words around this are incredibly loaded. And it's important to speak very, very carefully. We're not used to having conversations about potentially being able to cure these conditions and disorders. And why would you potentially want or need to cure autism? The controversy and the complexity in this area is once we found the biomarkers that suggest why someone potentially might have certain conditions and disorders, what do we then do? There's no question that if we find the biomarkers to suggest that someone has cancer, that we should intervene and that cancer does not need to be in people's bodies. But when we find the biomarkers that suggest that someone might have a certain neuropsychiatric condition, there is not yet anything to suggest that we should intervene. And as with designer babies, that's a discussion that we need to have as a society. Once we're able to understand potentially the processes that drive these disorders and conditions, there's nothing to say that we should act. And we need to have a very, very, very complicated and important discussion about if we can act, how we act. Brilliant, James. Thank you. And so, so poignant and so thought provoking as well. Before you go, as this is the Brain Care podcast, I'd love to know how you take care of your brain in your own life. What do you do on a regular basis to make sure you're looking after your number one? I'm sure this isn't unique to myself, but we're speaking on a beautiful, sunny afternoon here in London. And something that I've discovered through lockdown is the importance of getting out of the house doing a little bit of physical exercise, taking a few gulps of fresh air. Uh, so I've, I never would have thought I, I would have said this, but for sort of the last 10 months or so of lockdown, I've taken up running. So there's nothing quite as good as going outside, getting a bit of sunshine, running around, letting your mind drift off wherever it wants to drift. And I found that to be absolutely invaluable, particularly um, over some of the, the darkest days of lockdown. Amazing, James. You've been a brilliant guest. Thank you so much. Where can people find you, follow you, and obviously um, head on over to get the books? Yep. So I'm at Jay Temperton on Twitter. You can check out Wired UK at wired.co.uk. And the book is The Future of Medicine, How We Will Enjoy Longer, Healthier Lives. And it's available pretty much anywhere that you could think to buy a book. Amazing. Thank you so much, James. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Brain Care Podcast. Don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes and follow us at your heights on Instagram and Twitter for daily doses of brain care. If you want to know more about how healthy your brain is, you can head to yourheights.com forward slash brain health to get your free score from one to 100. See you next time. Hold up. 